Book este alton. You are not your own. Agarestata gartemes. You were bought with a price. Agarestata. You might be able to hear the word agora in there. You maybe have heard of the English word agoraphobia. It's kind of a big word. It's one of those fears that people have. Agoraphobia is fear of crowded places. The agora was the marketplace in the ancient world. Might think of the bazaar, right? And a very, very crowded place as well. And so if you wanted to go and find something that you could buy that you couldn't find elsewhere, you would go to the agora. And if you bought it, you would agorestata it. Yeah. So God has gone to market and bought you with a price. That word for price doesn't mean money. It means value. You were bought for a value. It can even mean honor. You were bought for a duty. You were bought for a reality. You were bought because he cares. And you were bought because he considered it worth his while. That's why he went so far as to buy you with his blood. The heartbeat of Christianity is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you once for all upon the cross to make it so that you could know with a certainty you are not your own. You have a master, you have a lord, you have a king, you have a father, you have an older brother who has gone before you through the toiling way into the grave and out again. And he guarantees that his price is sufficient to bring you to be where he is. Anything else we ever say about Christianity from the definition of what marriage is to what you should do with your pocketbook starts where Jesus is risen from the dead. He is risen. Hallelujah. So again, I must emphasize to you as we talk about stewardship over the next couple of weeks, Remember, stewardship is not about what you do to make God happy with you. Stewardship is you coming to grips with the fact that God is happy with you. It's pretty hard to do, actually. The human mind prefers to think that what we get is based on what we do. It's called the opinion of the law. And when things go bad, we look at God and we say, why? What did I do? As if that's what it's all about. But Christianity is the promise, the declaration, the reality that God is merciful before all things. That it is better to give than to receive. And that's not what he says you should do. It's what he says he's going to do. He's going to give, not receive from you. Keeping that as your foundation. Remembering that you are always under grace. And not under the law, under the law, makes it so that talking about things like money and your body and your time and your mind are not about you trying to feel some way to be better, but about learning to see, learning to understand what God sees rather than what you 
see. Now, as far as our two texts we're going to look at here, I want to start with our gospel reading, and then we'll go into the 1 Corinthians text that I just spoke a little tongues for you about, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, our theme verse. But let's start with Luke chapter 12 this morning, page 871 of your pew Bible, this parable of the rich, notice, rich fool. The rich fool. It's not that he's a sinner. It's not that he's wicked. It's that he doesn't see. Does that mean he went to hell? The the text doesn't really say, although it appears he doesn't know who his God is. It's just a story after all. But the story has a point. The story has a desire to make you not like the fool. When you read the Proverbs, if you do, and I really highly recommend you read a single proverb a day. It will change your life. When you read the Proverbs, you're bound to come to one or 15 Proverbs that you go, wow, that's not, oops, I'm the bad problem here. And then that can make you think, maybe I shouldn't read this anymore, or maybe I should try to get better. No, 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 no. That's not why it's there for. It's just there for you to want to be what it says. Trust in Jesus with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. We can all use that with some sort of, quote, second use of the law diagnostic to show how we're all sinners. Do you trust in Jesus with all your heart? No, of course not. Well, therefore, you can't keep that rule, can you then? So you need to be saved. That's how Lutherans tend to preach it. Now, but you lose something here. Trust in Jesus with all your heart. Don't you want to? Don't you wish you could lean not on your own understanding? Wouldn't life be amazing if in every moment you're like, yeah, Jesus got this covered. Wouldn't that feel great? It would. That's what that text is there for. It's there to say, Jesus, can I? Would you let me? Can you start me down that path to trusting in you? And so see this parable as well, not as something there to condemn you and send you away to wander in darkness because you can't be better than this guy. See it as a an instant, uh, uh, an inspiration for prayer. Of course, you're like this rich fool. Of course, you're always wanting more and trying to store it. But can you see how it's foolish? Can you desire to be wise? Can you ask Jesus, make me wise? That's faith. Not the, the power of being wise, but the reality, the realization that Jesus is the source of wisdom. And that if you're going to see clearly, it's going to be because he opens your eyes. If your eye is not going to be filled with darkness, it's going to be because his light shines. All right. So the text itself, again, starting at uh, verse, uh, I think verse 16 is where uh, our, our text picked up as we read. But I want to just take us back and read the context a little bit, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Yeah. Hey, teacher, I got a blood relation and he's got too much of my money. Do something about it. Hey, teacher, guess what I'm concerned about? Right now. My stuff. Me, me, me. That's who we are. We're all like that. Yeah, but don't, don't, don't be too proud. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Anytime you get a no answer from your prayers to Jesus, 
you're asking for this specific thing to happen and it doesn't happen, you can go to this text and use it to kind of beat your flesh a little bit. Jesus doesn't care that much about how good you feel right now. He cares a lot more about you seeing where he's taking you. And if he has to make you feel bad right now so that you can wake up and see where he's taking you that will be better than right now, he's going to let that happen. He doesn't care too much about whether the nations rise or fall. He's pretty aware that's going to happen. And in fact, he's going to make it happen so that the remnant of the church can be brought in faith through it and out of it. Yeah. So his statement, who made me arbiter? He's basically saying, dude, you're way too concerned about your present situation. Way too concerned. Now, then he says to them, verse 15, take care. And be on guard against all covetousness. You could put the word greed in there for covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How hard it is. How hard it is to believe that that is true with your emotions. Of course, wherever you live, there's someone with a bigger, better house. And you think, why not me? And you're out on the road driving, and even if you got your favorite car, you bought the one you wanted, you're going to see someone else in one with a different color, and you're going to think, maybe I should have. Yeah? You can't get away from it. And so, again, be on guard. The point isn't never covet. I mean, that'd be nice. That'd be real nice. The point is, see how much you covet. Watch it. Don't let it win your mind. Certainly don't let it teach you who you are. When you feel that you haven't been enough because you haven't gotten enough, call that the lie that it is. You're baptized into Jesus. You've been killed and raised again with the wounds of his cross. Who cares what you have? It's all going to burn. But you're not going to. You're going to walk through the burning, through the fire, through the flame, as on dry ground, clean and washed. Ah. Now to the actual story that he tells, verse 16, he told them a parable. Parable just means story, uh, usually with a thematic meaning. Saying, very clear, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice he's already rich. He's got plenty. He's got no troubles, right? And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, it's not like that's a sinful thought. Like, okay, I got this thing. What should I do with it? Like, you, you do have to decide what to do with what you have. That is life. That's daily life. But the issue here is notice who he decides to serve. Himself. I was given all of this. And so what I'll do is I'll make sure I have all of this. The last thing I'll do is share it. And notice, of course, he, he brings no tithe to the temple. In ancient Israel, this would have been required. Yeah, not just suggested, but, but required. He doesn't even think of this. He only thinks, okay, good, I've succeeded. Therefore, I'm going to live it up now. Yeah? I will do this, he says. Verse 18. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. The purpose of that is verse 19. 
Why do you want the money in your bank account? It's not so you can look at the numbers late at night. That actually makes you feel bad. And most people know that. You don't think you have enough. Why do you think you want more in those numbers? Is so, verse 19, you can say to your soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Money is, is loved by us not because of what it is, but because of what it convinces us we have, which is a future that is under our control. And so I think that if I have enough dollars or enough gold or a maybe even enough Bitcoin, that therefore 15 years from now or next week or in several months, I'll be okay. Now, whatever else might come, and I don't know what's coming. We could We could talk about all the theories and ideas spinning around this divided country and and all the things that the world seems to not be happening from nuclear war in Ukraine to famines and and food deserts. Well, Gal, if I just had a little bit more money in my bank account, I could be confident about going through this. And and the, the fact is, no, no, you wouldn't. The richer you get, the more concerned you get with keeping richness. The more money you have, the more you have to protect that money. The freest man of all is the man who has nothing to lose. And this is the gift God has given you in Jesus Christ, that even if you are rich beyond my wildest dreams, guess what? You still have nothing to lose because you can know with the fact it's all just passing. This, this is the magic of this, right? This is the miracle of this, that you can be wealthy in this age and have it not actually matter to you that much. But then that starts again by realizing that you don't need any more than you have. What you have is enough, and what you have, whether it's more or less today or tomorrow, is there not for you to say, I'll store it so I can use it for me later, to say thank you, Jesus, and then to walk with your head held high, willing to use it for the good you see now. Now, again, here here is the challenge. God says to him in verse 20, you fool, fool means one who doesn't see. You don't see. This night, your soul is required of you, And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Oh, there's so much there in that nugget. Everything that you buy, everything that you build, everything that you make, everything that you do, once you die, whose will they be? Best case scenario, you got a great will and trust, and you manage to keep it out of your kids' hands until they're old enough to know not to waste it on stupid stuff best case scenario and it goes to your kids hands maybe although the government's going to do that death texting they're going to reach in they're going to grab their share oh they're a little less than it was and then in best case scenario your kid manages to use it for what buy a car for his kid, send his kid to college okay and then where is it it's gone that's best case scenario worst case scenario i don't even want to talk about but there's because there's lots of them there's lots of them that you manage to store up for yourself millions of dollars in a trust fund for your kids. They get it and it ruins their life. That's all too normal, not for millions and millions of dollars, but just for kids who have first class, first world lifestyles. Wherein everything is provided for them and so they actually care less about everything. They never learn the value of survival or hard work. And I know you see this. It's, it's just happening to us. And I know you see the drug situation that's taking place in our country. And, and if you want to know why, it's because these kids have nothing worth living for because they don't have to live for anything. 
you don't know what's going to happen after you die is the main point. God does. He has a plan. He even says pretty clearly that he'll let a wicked man store up all sorts of goods just so that he can kill that wicked man and then give those goods to the poor. He'll redistribute those goods. So again, what is the point? Verse 20 again. I lost my place on the text. Where did it go? Did the page turn? No, it isn't. Right there. Um, Verse 21, right? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Point is not you need to give everything you have to the church. Point is not you need to give everything away. Point is don't be rich for yourself. Don't want to be rich for yourself. Since you're going to find out you want to be rich for yourself, repent. When you find that thought in your heart, say, that's a bad thought. Jesus, I don't like that thought. Jesus, forgive me for that thought. Jesus, can I have better thoughts? Can I learn how to store up treasure for heaven? Which isn't, again, about what you put in the offering plate. You're not going to get a better place in heaven by putting a better tithe in this year. When we talk about making our step up in giving and we ask you just to increase 1% of your giving this year, which, by the way, we've been doing this four years, and just you wait until that voters meeting and you see the results in our budget this year. You're going to be blown away about how good this has been for us. But before you do that, if you put 1% or 15% in the offering plate, it's not going to get you a better place in heaven. That's not why you do it. That's not how you store up treasure in heaven. You store up treasure in heaven by reading the Psalms in the name of Jesus and believing they're true. You store up treasure in heaven by learning to think on higher things while you're here in this lower plane of the fallen earth. And you store up treasure in heaven when you speak the name of Jesus to other human beings who will meet you in heaven and will be glad to see you there because they are the treasure. The great treasure stored up for heaven that we have lost in this last generation is not the money in the pew or in the in the offering plate is the children in the church. That's the treasure that's been lost most of all. Why? Well, because we've been so concerned with making sure those children have their best life now. Going to make sure they keep the first class lifestyle that we've had ourselves. It got better than it used to be in the 40s. So we got to make sure they go off to college and have a good job and get what they need all before they would ever get married, not realizing that off at college, they're being brainwashed by liars whose consciences are seared, who hate Jesus and hate his church, who will teach them to not have kids at all because they'll show them all the problems that come with kids. Kids do make you poorer. Kids do make you have less time. Kids do make it so that you can't do everything that you want. They do make you less selfish by nature. And so, of course, people who are taught to be selfish their whole life long are going to not want that. And just like that, in a single generation, we've traded this life for the next so far as the next generation is concerned. Now, St. Paul, don't get me wrong. We have an amazing blessing here. You look around, what you see in this church is every generation represented. I want you to understand how weird that is right now. And that it's a blessing to us. God has blessed us with a generation that has spawned another generation. And we are committed to passing on our faith through the scriptures. So again, what's this year about? What's this time about? Recommit. Remember why. 
Say to Jesus, teach me to store up treasure in heaven. Put your spirit in my heart. Put your words in your mind. Show me the way I should go. Let me trust in you. Now, if you would turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or maybe find it the first time, this is on page 955 of your pew Bible. And you, you probably noticed during the reading that the bulk of this is about the stewardship of your body for marriage. Now, before I talk about marriage, let me make it clear. Not everyone in the world has to get married. In this very same context, Paul will talk about those who never get married and declare that they have a bit more freedom. I just mentioned how much trouble kids are going to cause. Getting married causes trouble too. It means you have to care about somebody else. And sometimes that other person sometimes is a sinner. Huh? And that sinner that you live with who is concerned about what they want and what they need and how they feel. Well, that doesn't always jive with what you want and what you need and what you feel. And so it causes you to have to spend time focused on that, which Paul says, if you're single, you could just pray all day. (laughs) Now, you know, most American singles aren't doing that. But the point here is don't hear what I'm about to say as saying that marriage is the only option for everybody. But marriage is the normal option. Marriage is the way life was created to be. And this whole section is about preserving that idea, that that reality even, and seeking to see it as the stewardship of your own body. Remember that when you marry someone, man or woman, you marry the opposite. What normally happens when you marry the opposite, a man marries a woman, what normally happens is you have kids. It just happens. You don't really have to try. We spend all manner of time and money trying not to in our society, because you don't really have to try. It just happens. And when those kids come out of the woman and are seen, they are beautiful to you more than to anybody else because they're part of your body. So as we talk about the stewardship of your body for marriage, please understand this is also about your children. That your children are your body going forward another generation. And that there is no greater gift in this present age than that. Because that is the treasure that will follow you into paradise. You will spend time with both your grandpa and your great grandkid. Even if you never met them. Because that's the gift of a thousand generations baptized into Jesus. Yeah. Now in this section Paul is dealing with a member of the congregation who is sleeping with, that is having sex with, his mother-in-law. It's kind of a crazy thing. He pretty much says, stop it. Stop it. But in the conversation about it, he's also going to talk about prostitution, which is people who sell their bodies for sex. Prostitution is an example of adultery. Adultery is to take marriage, one man, one woman, for life and kids, and to insert into it more of something else. In this case, more women who aren't there for kids. When you go to a prostitute, you don't want kids with her. You're rejecting that idea. So he's going to say, this is a bad idea. But what I want you to see here is how none of this is really about sex. All of this is about you being tied to Jesus Christ. You are one with him. And so because your body is now tied to his body, what you do with your body matters. That's stewardship. I'm not talking about diet and exercise. I'm talking again about what goes into your eyeballs. Good things or wicked things. 
Huh? The word of God or the word of men? Okay, so I'll make sure we get to the text. Verse 12 says, all things are lawful for me. Notice the quotation marks around that. Uh, what that probably means, that, that's a note from the editors ultimately, but I agree with them. What that means is that that isn't something Paul's writing. That's something Paul is responding to. That in Corinth, there were a bunch of sayings being thrown around that were being used wrong. And so these sayings were possibly, I think so, sent to Paul in a letter written by a member of the church named Chloe. So he effectively gets a letter saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And he writes back and he quotes them and then he comments on them. So all things are lawful for me was being said in the congregation. And he doesn't say it's not true that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Romans 8 verse 1, do you remember? There is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ. All things are lawful for you. You could even go to a prostitute and it wouldn't divide you from Jesus. But not all things are helpful. If you're actually a Christian who goes to a prostitute and in that moment are not already lacking faith, what would happen next is shame. And that shame would tell you you're not a Christian. And unless you came back and had someone forgive you for it, you would beat yourself out of the faith with that shame. It's not the act that's the problem, right? It's the unbelief that is either causing or resulting the act. And so, yeah, all things are lawful. We're not under the law. We don't have to prove ourselves to God by how good or how pure we are. But we can see that sin hurts people. And what he's going to say here again is that sexual sin hurts you. It's the only sin you can do that's against yourself. Huh? But are all things lawful? Are you free in the gospel? Yes. Free to become wise. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, right? I will be the master of my body, not my flesh, my heart, my soul, my will, my emotions being master of me. He mentions food here for a moment. Notice the quotes, probably from them again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was probably being used to justify sexual immorality. Rather than talk about how certain body parts are meant for sex and so we can do whatever we want, they would talk about food in the stomach as sort of a, a symbol. It's, it's a metaphor. But he points out, wait, well, God's going to burn both in hell. They're going to be destroyed. So don't be so proud of what freedom you think you've gained to do evil. Yeah. The body is not meant for fornication. It says sexual immorality. I like the word fornication. But for the Lord, your body's for Jesus. We're not going to be married in the life of the world to come, according to Jesus' own words. Why? Because you're going to belong to him in a sexual way? No. In a way beyond what you can possibly imagine. Now you're like a seed. Then you're going to be a flower. Stop worrying about what it'll be like and just believe it. You are meant for Jesus. And Jesus is meant for, not just you, notice it says the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Your body's going to rise from the dead. So verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Already, this is where our very simple belief in the plain meaning of the Lord's Supper becomes all the more obvious. That when the body of Jesus Christ is present under the bread and wine, as the bread and wine, the body of Jesus Christ crosses the threshold of your lips 
and enters you to be digested in such a way so as to you actually being the body of Jesus. You're a member of him now. You're an extension of his humanity. Shall I then, he says, take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or, he asked, maybe you don't understand that, uh, uh, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's a marriage text. And it very clearly shows that sexual intercourse is marriage. It's a form of marriage. It is the substance of marriage. But he, verse 17, who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Yeah? The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. He's going to say that again in a moment. But first, verse 18, so flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? That's where we want to go with set apart blood bond. Don't you know you belong to Jesus? Yes, you do. But the world is trying to steal that idea from you every single day. And they don't fight fair out there. They don't come at you direct. They come at you from the side. And they try to manipulate your emotions and your subconscious with messages and streaming and all manner of white noise. They try to overwhelm you with a flood of other ideas to make you forget that you belong to Jesus. That your body is his temple. That everywhere you go, the light of the world goes with you, inside you, seeing what you see, hearing what you hear, and desiring to say what he said. Don't forget it. That you are not your own. Because you're blood bought. You're, you're owned by Jesus now. You have a master. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. That is in everything that you do. Um, I don't know if this is a good way to end or not. It'll take me an extra moment past the time. But, uh, you know, we, we bought a puppy a little while ago. His name is Aurelius. Not for the... The Caesar, there was a Caesar named Aurelius, but for the hymn writer, Aurelius Prudentius Clemens, uh, he wrote, uh, Of the Father's Love Begotten, a marvelous Christmas hymn. Anyway, Aurelius, he's a German shepherd. Uh, he's six months old, so he's full size with stupid brain still, right? This is like the, the most amazing time of having a puppy. Um, and uh, I, I keep trying to understand him because I want to see that all of his aggression and all these other things, you're chewing on this, none of it's malicious. He's not like, I'm going to be mean and chew the slipper, right? That's not what he's doing. He's just like, I'm a puppy. I'm going to chew the slipper. What's gotten back into my mind is um, the, the idea of uh, dogs in packs need an alpha. They always follow the alpha. And the reason that the dog is man's best friend is because even a child can put a collar on a dog and like, boom, you're the alpha. And unlike us, where if I were to like be in charge of you and be like, come here with a, with a, with a, a chain, right? Uh, we'd be like, why'd you do that to me, right? The dog, once he comes over, he's like, hi, I'm glad to see you. I'm a dog. Yeah, you're my alpha. You're my master. The dog wants a master. So badly. He's glad to have someone over him. Oh, master feeds me. Master pets me. Master takes me to where I have all my poo. Huh? The dog wants the master. The Christian begins to be wise 
to see that having a master is good for us too. And your master is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity to provide for your every need, to set the way you are to go, to lead you in paths of righteousness and innocence forever. So as we remember how set apart we are and we talk a little at some point in the coming weeks about what we need to give to keep this place going the way that it does, don't forget, it's really not about that. It's about how you're not your own because you were bought with a price. In the name of Jesus.